When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Cristiano Ronaldo plays in his fifth European Championship record. He scores in his fifth European Championship, another record. He scores his 10th and 11th European Championship goals. Yes, another record. The international men's record, well, that's three more goals away. And in Munich, Mbappe has Mats Hummels and Germany on toast. I'm Jake from What If Football, and this is the Euro Daily Podcast episode 10. You can find us on Acast, Apple, Spotify, or Amazon. If you're on those platforms, please give us a a like and a subscribe and if you're enjoying the show give us a, a lovely five star review to boost those algorithms and we're also producing this podcast for the Patreon page that is of course patreon.com forward slash what if football after the European Championships we'll have seven days a week content for just the price of a pint but here in Yorkshire that's three pounds and you'll get contemporary football podcasts, historical podcasts as well as well as um, football manager content 50 weeks a year, seven days a week now I've got all that out of the way, let's get stuck into today's show. Let's go back to 1958. The World Cup, France beat Germany, or West Germany as it was then known, 6-3. Fast forward to 1982, West Germany and France had that humdinger of a semi-final in the World Cup. It ended 3-3 and 5-4 on penalties, most memorable of which for the Schumacher-Battiston incident in extra time. Four more years and another World Cup passed and West Germany had France on toast again, 2-0 in the, that knockout phase at tie. And in 2014, Germany made it three in a row with a 1-0 win over France at the World Cup. And in the pair's final major tournament meeting, France would have Germany's number 2-0 in the semi-finals, two goals from Antoine Griezmann in that one. And last night it was the sixth meeting between these two super giants in uh, tournament football and France levelled up at three wins apiece with a 1-0 victory in Munich. France had only won one of the last three European Championship openers and that was last time out 
in front of home fans against Romania. So in fact their last their last win in the European Championship away from their home fans was in 2004 that Zinedine Zidane masterclass in Lisbon against England. Of course they are still undefeated in European Championship openers since the uh, group stage was was brought into being. So France lined up in a 4-3-1-2 with Adrian Rabiot alongside uh, N'Golo Kante and Paul Pogba. And both the beauty of this um, tactical formation is that Rabiot and Pogba can both pull wide to make it a 4-2-3-1. Alternatively, it could be perceived as a 4-3-3 with Antoine Griezmann on the right. Mbappe, of course, on the left. Those can interchange quite clearly. And Karim Benzema, of course, the main man up front. Kim Pembe partnered Rafael Varane at centre half, and of course, Benzema was the main, was supposedly the main star of the show, and his big return for uh, France in a competitive match. It was more of a four-three-three-four-five-one out of uh, out of possession there, with Griezmann dropping kind of quite deep in on that right channel with Mbappe doing likewise. Obviously, the speed of Mbappe means he could start in this penalty box and still be a huge threat from the counter, as Mats Hummels will be attesting to this very morning as he wakes up with very, very sore legs. France also had the height advantage on set pieces, and that is where the, where the first big chance of the game came when Paul Pogba should have converted from a corner. And uh, Mbappe, coming off the game, he tormented Joshua Kimmich in uh, the Champions League against Bayern Munich for PSG, and was doing the same early, as well as Matthias Ginter as well, and uh, produced a save off Manuel Neuer a couple of minutes later. But the... The goal came when Paul Pogba, in one of the matches of his uh, career really, he played an absolutely sumptuous pass out to the left flank, caused Germany problems in behind and from there Luca Hernandez drilled the ball, drill, low drilled cross and it found Mats Hummels in a difficult position, the corridor of uncertainty. Mats Hummels smashed it into his own net, 20 minutes gone and from then on in it seemed inevitable the result really. Defensively, Germany were kind of all over the shop, really. Um, from that throwing, they were the structure made no sense. You had the midfielders high up the pitch, but all the defenders was were slanted towards one half of the pitch, which you do from a throwing, but aggressively so. They wanted to press them immediately, but obviously France got out of that and just pinged it, pinged a diagonal, and obviously that's where the goal comes from. France was so much quicker. They were so much more assured on the ball. I thought Germany looked kind of a bit nervous, which is bizarre when some of these players have won a World Cup final. Um, France were playing football at, at like an elite club level, at a Champions League level. This Obviously, international football's kind of downgraded a little bit. Obviously, the drama more than makes up for it. But in terms of the quality, this is club level that we're watching here from France and that is why they look so much better than any other international team at the minute. They, they showed glimpses on the ball at least like Italy did, England you could say maybe, Belgium but obviously France here are against far better opponents than Belgium, Italy or England faced in the first round of fixtures here. And as the game wore on you could see that Rabiot was pl pulling more on that left channel as well with um, Mbappe, Mbappe coming a bit central in the attack. Mbappe hit the post, uh, Rabiot hit the post rather, found by Mbappe. So there's that there's that little link there on the left channel with um, Mbappe tucking in. So it's more of a 4-3-1-2 and Rabiot getting forward. And I think Rabiot went a bit, a little bit under the radar. He's a very, very good box-to-box um, -box midfielder, but plays mainly in the channels and... Um, 
will be taking over that Blaise Matuidi role who played uh, it so excellently at the World Cup in Russia three three years ago. And um, the next time France hit the post, Mbappe's shot hit the post and then went in. A superb finish. He looked so composed in that Munich penalty box. It seemed as a time stopped still. He just took the ball and then just simply curled it beyond Manuel Neuer. But unfortunately, the flag was uh, cruelly up. Um, it was a fantastic goal. And he was just... Mbappe was fantastic throughout and he didn't even need to be at his, at his best, really. Um, I feel as though everybody talks up N'Golo Kante. He did have a fantastic game. Kante did as well. I mean... He does the work of two or three midfielders on his own, which is what makes Pogba so good in a French shirt, which is what so many people don't realise about um, Kante, that he makes other players look so much better. And um, maybe if the Manchester United hierarchy uh, watched that game, they might be using this to sign a central midfielder as opposed to a a winger or a centre-half, which is what Manchester United actually need um, in midfield to... uh, make the best out of Pogba rather than putting him on the left side. Anyway, we just accept because Kante's plays so well and the acclaim that he gets that we just act, I feel as though sometimes we just accept that Mbappe is at the level that he's at and actually he's actually just incredible. He's an incredible footballer and he's 22 years of age. Um, the way he blitzed past Mats Hummels on the counter-attack was actually frightening. Um, he wasn't mobile at all. Um Mats Hummels, unfortunately, the three should have um, three at the back should have protected him a little bit, really, but it, it didn't because Mbappe was just bursting past him like he wasn't there. Pogba played that pl- pass as well in the uh, for the second disallowed goal, unfortunately, as uh, Mbappe fed Karim Benzema, but unfortunately, that was ruled out as well. Um, Pogba I thought had a fantastic game. All the midfield did really. Rabio energetic and Kante was as it needs saying there. Uh, he was fantastic, and I think that makes the mid. I have not mentioned France's midfield so far on this podcast that we do every day here, uh, but it makes France's midfield Rabiot, Pogba, Kante. It makes it the most dangerous. I've seen I've seen um, team sheets, like predicted team sheets, call for Kingsley Coman or Usman Dembele out wide to make it more of a four-two-three-one. But I think this way, this way is the way that France are going to go. Four-three-one-two. It's it's very adaptable. You can play it in a 4-3-3 if you want to be more attacking. You play it 4-3-1-2 with Griezmann sort of in a free roll almost. You play it any number of ways, 4-2-3-1 with one of Rabiot or Pogba pulling out wide to either flank really, um, probably more so the left and um, Mbappe goes centrally. I mean, it could be interpreted any number of ways, which makes that system so much of a problem for teams. And Rabiot's energy, I think, is probably as crucial as Kante's just <laughs> running. He just, he just, he's incredible, isn't he? I mean, he will win. If France do, if, let's say, if France get to the semi-finals or final, which they probably will do, Kante will win the, goal, the Ballon d'Or, won't he? So, and a well-deserved, by the way. Anyway, let's go to Germany. And um, Germany had a run of 10 games undefeated in uh, European Championship openers since the group stage coming to being in uh, 1980. 10 games, won five, drawn five. Germany hadn't conceded since a 2004 opener to the Netherlands. And so for the first time in uh, in uh, four games there that Germany haven't con- that have conceded and, of course, the first time ever that they've lost a European Championships opener. 
the two times that they exited the group stages, at least in the 21st century, they were 1-1 draws to the likes of Romania in 2000 and the Netherlands in 2004. So, uh, Love seems intent on sticking with his three at the back. And I do think, for as much as a flack that he has been getting for this system, I think three at the back works more for Germany. It's just what personnel is put in where. So, for instance, Joshua Kimmich is playing right wing back which makes it very fluid, interchangeable. Obviously, that's it on, that's, um, on paper at least. He, he never went, that never sort of transpired last night. It could easily be a revert to a 4-2-3-1. Mateus Ginter could go right back. Kimmich could tuck inside. That never happened really. Kimmich was uh, always down the line. And to be fair, he did, he did, his energy was quite good um, getting up and down that channel and crossing in balls. I thought was, Kimmich was one of the better players, but for me, Kimmich is better utilised in the midfield. And I read earlier this morning, it's akin to putting Gundogan as your number six in defensive mid in the Champions League final. You've got your best, you've got your best defensive midfielder, Fernandinho, in that instance, on the bench, wherever. This time, Yogi Love's got his best defensive midfielder at right wing back. Obviously, Kimmich is more than capable of playing that position. But for a game like this, for for the big games that are to come, perhaps for Germany, if they don't get knocked out of the groups, I think Kimmich is just better playing centrally. It might allow Tony Kroos to play, but I think in this instance, at least, Yogi Love should revert to his um, discarding of legends that have won him the World Cup. So we obviously saw Boateng. Hummels, Muller discarded after the uh, 2018 World Cup. I think Tony Kroos should go on to the bench. Kimmich, partner in uh, Gundian or Goretzka if he comes back and um, play it a bit more. Because like, they've got right wing backs in there. They've got Ginter could play there. You can, Emre Jan, maybe not maybe not at right wing back, but you've got Lucas Klosterman can also play there. He plays the plays at right wing back for Leipzig. Um, he might not be the best defender you've ever seen, but... It, it, it's a sacrifice to make uh, Kimmich in the midfield and that's what they'll need, especially against Portugal in that double pivot that they play with uh, Carvalho and um, Danilo Pereira there. Muller and the front three, to be fair, is very... Is, I like the setup of the front three. You've got any number of combinations, really. Gnabry, Muller, Sané, Havertz, Werner, they can all play in any of the three positions, really, because Muller was coming out wide. He was dropping in behind the uh, centre-forward, be it Gnabry or Havertz, and he could easily play on the left as well. Gnabry, of course, and Sané, they can play out wide, they can play through the middle. Played split forwards with Gnabry and Sané in uh, qualifiers gone by as well. So, I mean, I do like that front three. It's an extremely fluid front front three, and um, these rotations, I think, makes them very, very dangerous. Obviously, Gnabry and Sané have been highly successful this season. Havertz and Werner also, for their club's, I just think this system makes sense. Yogi Love just hasn't implemented it correctly. I think he got cold feet a little bit in uh, reverting to a four midway through qualification, but has since come back to the three. And I think it's just a little bit too late for it to be uh, fully in effect. And I just don't think they're playing Kimmich in the right position, to be honest with you. On the other hand side, on the left hand side, Robin Gerson's naturally pushes high, which makes him at wing back as opposed to full back more suitable to this system. He found Thomas Muller with a great cross on the 22nd minute, but he's kind of snatched at the header, glanced it wide. And to be, fair, to be fair, that was a story of Germany in this contest. They were snatching at chances. They didn't look comfortable at all um, in front of goal. Ilkay Gundian, before the halftime break, 
it was a nice work up to the shot you got Serge Gnabry with that little overhead kick um, assist as it would have been but Gundogan smashes it into the ground and he's, or smashes it wide rather and uh, it wasn't it wasn't the best uh, connection from Gundogan similar with uh, Gnabry after the break Gerson's found him again I thought to be fair I think Gerson's is one of the key players um, in terms of defensively in terms of delivery into the box for Germany and another fantastic delivery finds him finds Gnabry but he snatches that he hits it into the ground and it just goes over it could have could have fooled um, Hugo Lloris maybe if um, it, was, it connected a bit better but again snatched chance really Kimmich I thought was becoming more and more influential as the game wore on really as Germany sort of it was either Germany pinning France back or France just accepting it, knowing that they've got the weapons on the counter-attack as uh, Mbappe and Griezmann, Pogba as well with his passing. So I think it was more by design that France was sitting back rather than Germany penned them back, as it were. But Kimmich, I thought um, he was delivering decent crosses and um, looked good, but I still think that he's better in that midfield position. And... Um, I just think France never really got out of uh, second or third gear, really. They, they didn't need to be at their best to win it. And I think that'll be where France win this tournament because they can sit back at 1-0. They've got the midfield, they've got the uh, defence for the most part to sit back. And then obviously the weapons to go forward and hit them on the counter-attack. This is why PSG is so, so good in the Champions League because of Mbappe on that counter-attack. They just, he's, he's, no one's found an answer for him really um, consistently. And I think that is what will win France this uh, European Championship. And now we've seen all 24 teams, who, who is going to win it? Um, France have probably overcome their biggest opposition in their very first game. Italy, on the other hand, Italy, I think they've looked assured on the ball, as have France, admittedly, as have England. I don't think we'll be able to decide on Italy truly until the group stages are over. Obviously, it's a kind of a tough group in terms of them being top seeds and facing Wales, Switzerland, Turkey, but they're not the teams that are going to test them too much. They're all they're all going to sit back now, Switzerland and Wales especially, um, which we'll see today. Um, I think they're going to get found out a little bit more in defence um, as the knockout stages wear on. So if they meet a Belgium, for instance, if their big names are back, um, if they meet in England, maybe, or, and especially if they meet in France. Italy, I think, can go a long way, but I'd, I don't think we can sort of gauge them just yet. And same with England, really. They've beaten a decent Croatia team, but I think it's a lesser Croatia team than what they were in 2018. Of course, England will want to uh, get get Friday out of the way, get that hurdle out of the way, and then focus on the, on the last 16. I feel as though they'll grow into the tournament. Phil Foden will grow into the tournament even though Phil Foden looked very assured on uh, Sunday afternoon. They looked better on the ball defensively. They looked quite decent, even in a four, as opposed to a three or a five at the back. Still got um, name, experienced names coming, Harry Maguire, John Henderson, etc. And um, I just feel that they'll grow into the tournament a bit like Italy, really, and um, I don't think we can gauge them just yet. Spain is a, another one of the eight names that I've got here, really. They may overcome the bad, bad preparation. They, I think they'll play a lot better once they get out of Seville because the pitch there I don't think is uh, conducive to what they want to do. Obviously, the COVID situation hasn't helped really as it's hampered, hampered them. They do seem to have the team spirit. They might need to drop Alvaro Morata for uh, Gerard Moreno if they are going to score goals and put those goals away, those chances away. 
Um, Netherlands, on the other hand, again, like Spain, I'm not expecting anything of them. I don't think uh, the first game showed them up. I think it showed them up quite well tactically. They're going to need a tactical shift. They've been talking in the uh, build-up to the next game that they might drop the 3-5-2 for a 4-3-3, as I suggested on the a Euro Daily podcast a couple of days ago. But the chaos that was the game against Ukraine shows that they'll get nowhere near, really. And Portugal, not at the best against Hungary yesterday. We'll get onto that in a minute. But I think they'll grow into the tournament a bit like England. Belgium still got their best players to come, but they beat a very, very poor Russian side. And I don't think we'll get a good gauge of them until perhaps the last 16 quarterfinals, especially with uh, Hazard maybe coming back, although I suggested that he shouldn't come back. Um, and Kevin De Bruyne, he, of course, one of the best players in world football at the minute. And yeah, we, we won't um, get a gauge on them, really. Germany aren't as shambolic as what we thought. They might lack a little bit of bite up top. They might look, not look completely comfortable, but I think their system works. It's just tactically the players in the positions are in the wrong places for me, with Kimmich especially. Um, the Portugal game will definitely tell us more uh, about their chances. Alternatively, once they get that group stage qualification out of the way, if they do qualify for the groups, let's not forget they did get eliminated in 2000 and 2004. This could be very similar. And um, we'll know more about them, especially after the Portugal game, maybe even after the Hungary game, if they can't get out of that one, um, as well as what we might think or might expect. So yeah, for me, it's probably between four teams, four or five teams, Portugal, Belgium, England, Italy and France. But again, it could all change at the drop of a hat. Portugal, after the group stages, only had three points, went on to win it, didn't they? And um, tournament football is as ever un predictable. After this short break, we're going to look at the 2021 trivial teaser and I definitely made it too easy yesterday. We've got, I think, five or six correct answers from you there. Um, it's definitely harder today. Welcome back. So we do have a 2021 trivial teaser, as always, here on the uh, Euro Daily podcast. And as always, the answer has to be a player who's playing at the European Championships this summer. Five of you got it right yesterday with Aaron Ramsey. So Radio Techers, George Spencer, Jake Collinson, Pazza, Crunch Pro all got Aaron Ramsey correctly. And maybe it was the Ryan Giggs double manager player that might have uh, thrown you Andrea Perlo as well. Could only be one man really, couldn't it? So today I am a centre half. I've been managed by Jose Mourinho and Marco Van Basten. Some of the players that I've played with, I've played with Dennis Romadal, Sadio Mane, Koke, Morgan Schneiderlin and Luis Suarez. Once more, I am a centre-half who's played underneath Jose Mourinho and Marco Van Basten and played with Dennis Rombadal, Sadio Mane, Koke, Morgan Schneiderlin and Luis Suarez. You can find out the answer on tomorrow's show and you can tweet me if you think you know the answer at whatif underscore YouTube where I'll be discussing Twitter. I'll be discussing all of the European Championships games at length as I always do. Anyway, after this short break, we'll be covering Portugal versus Hungary and we'll be previewing today's Group A and Group B fixtures. Welcome back. So in Cristiano Ronaldo's 22nd European Championships appearances, he was the first player to play in a fifth European Championship. Now, Portugal, they haven't had a fantastic opening to a European Championships Sort of in the past few tournaments, they lost to Greece in 2004, of course, in front of home fans. 
They lost to Germany in 2012 and drew with Iceland in 2016, but they got a win here. They've only won two of their uh, group fixtures, the other being against England in 2000, of course. The previous fixture between Portugal and Hungary in the Euros was that fantastic game of the tournament style game in the Group F fixture, the final Group F fixture in 2016, which was of course 3-3, which qualified Portugal for the for the last 16 by the skin of their teeth. Portugal, of course, lined up in a 4-3-3, 4-2-3-1 sort of uh, deal there, with uh, which was exactly as I predicted in my team preview, obviously, obviously without João Cancelo, obviously, unfortunately, out through covid um, Diego Diego Dallo came in into the squad with uh, Nelson Semedo covering from at right back with uh, Pepe in alongside Ruben Diaz there. Bruno would burst ahead of that double pivot of Danilo Pereira and William Carvalho. Jao Felix didn't come off the bench, but uh, Diogo Jota was in on the left-hand side with alongside him Rafael Guerrero, who played exceedingly high on the left, uh, which allows Jota to tuck in. Um, similarly, on the right-hand side as well, you had... Um, your man on the right-hand side tucking in as well with, uh, of course, Cristiano Ronaldo. <laughs> Cristiano Ronaldo feeding off Bernardo Silva and Diogo Jota there. He, for for the first half, first probably first hour really, Cristiano Ronaldo was probably trying a bit too hard to make something happen in the early stages. It seemed as though he was transported back to his 2004 days where he was trying all these flicks and tricks and stuff. <laughs> and um, it, nothing really happened for him, really. It was Diogo Jota who went close on numerous times. Obviously, Ronaldo had that bit of a paddy when he didn't pass to him when he was through on goal. Although the pass did look slightly harder than what a shot would have been able to do to conjure up in that split second. So I can't, you can't blame Jota for not passing him there. But he, I thought Ronaldo was on the fringes, really. Bernardo Silva was tricky to his, uh, to his right. I thought he was quite decent in the first half. Jota wasn't incisive enough, but at least he was getting into those spaces and uh, creating those chances. Bruno, though, was largely ineffectual throughout the entire game, really had that one chance, didn't he, in the second half. And um, But yeah, I think Jota was probably Portugal's best player going forward. Rafael Guerrero had a good game going high on the left. Um, the biggest chance fell to Cristiano Ronaldo before the break, and he blazed that sitter from six yards out over the bar, and the, the chance at that, that record-breaking call looked like it was gone. Um, I did think, despite being ineffectual, that um, Bruno's delivery from set-pieces was good. Um, he carved out a Pepe header, which was saved by Peter Galashi, who I thought was fantastic. Um, in the second half, he saved that one. And I did think, as the match wore on, as Hungary were sitting deeper and deeper and deeper, and Portugal pressed so high that Hungary could barely get out. Um, with the majority of the play in the final third, really, I thought that Portugal probably could have taken one of that double pivot out or at least beckoned one of Danilo or Cavalio out to play a lot higher up, a bit more attacking. Obviously, we had Rafa Silva come on. looked very energetic, um, very pacey up front. I thought he was. I thought he had a pretty decent cameo there. Um, for Hungary, they, they set up in a 5-3-2. Attila, Attila Soloy, I thought, was fantastic on the ball. He could rake passes out wide and he was uh, very good defensively. There'll be a lot of people scouting him at this tournament. Of course, you had Vili Orban who could uh, carry the ball out quite decently and, uh, of course, Peter Galashi in net was the big names at the back. You've got Klein Heisler, the creator in midfield and Schaefer could break the lines too in midfield. Um, I thought they I thought they'd look, they were set up very well. Um, Fiola at the right wing back, he could burst forward as well and... 
the two men up front, you had um, Roland Saloy and Adam Shaloy carrying the load on the counter-attack, really. And is there a more determined man than Adam Shaloy? They showed his uh, pre-match, um, pre-match pep talk for the... Uh, for the playoff final in November before the game and he probably did something similar here because the crowd were up for it. He was massively up for it. He was he was playing like a man possessed and who can blame him really? Biggest crowd in Budapest for quite some time. He had a had a chance first time first half header from a free kick, but it went over and he had a huge battle with a huge meaty battle with Ruben Diaz throughout the match, which I very, very much enjoyed. But I did feel as though Hungary were cut up and by quite simple passes. They had a free kick, that was, which was a bit of a warning sign, but Jota skewed a volley kind of badly over the bar and uh, Jota also made a hash of... Um, get, got fed a fruit ball behind the defence, which was, which looked fairly simple, really. Um, but obviously Portugal couldn't break Hungary down, could they, really? I thought... Vili Orban was a rock at the back. He had a fantastic tackle on Bernardo Silva in the box at one stage to stop him. And um, it just goes, goes to show why he's a Champions League centre-half, a Champions League semi-finalist as well. Um, I thought they thought Hungary were, were great at times at the back. And it was on the right-hand channel, really, with uh, Fiola um, Schaefer also joining the attack, of course, with Adam Shaloy. That's probably where Hungary could find joy if it was to come. They were restricted for, to chances from distance, really. Saloy had a good chance there. But they did offer more in the second half. Um, the second half was a lot more open. Portugal's press slightly waned. And they were looking for those long raking passes from defence to Shaloy, who was an absolute nuisance, wasn't he, uh, in that battle with uh, with uh, Ruben Diaz there. And, and Shaloy was energetic. He was running into the channels and... There's a great counter-attack found down the right-hand channel, which, you know, they, they would find that joy. Um, Schoen slipped through, and the shot slipped through the gloves of Patricio and Hungary, but Budapest went absolutely mental, and it looked as though Hungary were going to shock Portugal, but unfortunately it was offside. And how cruel is football that just a moment later, Rafael Guerrero scored with quite possibly one of the biggest strokes of luck you'll ever see. Um a nothing shot clips off Orban, goes into the net 1-0, 84 minutes gone. And that is how football can just turn on an instant. And Orban bringing down, um, giving the penalty away uh, just a moment or two later. Cristiano Ronaldo, the chance from the spot to break the goal record. Goal, obviously. And Ronaldo just rubs salt into the wounds. Rafa Silva giving the ball. 11th goal of the Euros, late on 3-0. And he's now three goals off the international scoring record. And... How can anybody doubt him, really? Obviously, you don't need to have the best game when you're playing centre-forward like he does. You've got his runners either side of him. You've got Bruno behind him, who will do the running for him now. He's 36. He's uh, sort of running when he has to, not running all the time now, and that's probably prolonged his career a lot. And you don't need to have a fantastic game, be the focal point to then be the most important player. He stuck away the two goals. Admittedly, yeah, the game was effectively won, but still two goals on his record, and that is why he he's um, up there with Lionel Messi with the goal-scoring records. He's only three off Ali Dyer's record now of uh, of uh, Iran, and uh, I just don't say you can doubt him, really. I was on uh, BBC Radio Leeds yesterday. I got asked who the Golden Boot winner was. Kind of Ronaldo kind of put me in a difficult spot here with, uh, with uh, his two goals before I went on there, and Romelu Lukaku was 
my choice. I still think he is my choice because I think Belgium will get further. But Ronaldo's just a completely different beast, isn't he? Just so determined to uh, hoover up any award, really. So let's go to Group A, where we have our first lot of second round fixtures. Wales play Turkey in f- at 5pm. Turkey's second game record isn't the best. They've only won one of five, one of four, sorry. And that was a 2-1 win against Switzerland in 2008. Um, Chanel Gunias, the uh, manager from 2002, didn't really bounce back from the first defeat in 2002 when they lost to the favourites in Brazil. They would then go on to draw against Costa Rica, obviously still make it out of the group and get all the way to the semi-final. So a point here or even a defeat isn't really the worst thing in the world for Turkey, but but they will have that um, pretty much home advantage, won't they? 35,000 Turkish fans expected to be in Baku, which will feel like an away game. Might even G Wales up a little bit. 8,000 were in Baku for the Wales-Switzerland tie on uh, Saturday. Maybe it'll give Wales a boost. Maybe it'll be like the good old Galatasaray days of the old Champions League, where it's pretty much like hell on earth. Um, Manchester United suffered... uh, under that in 1994, you might remember. Um, it's a bit of a, a bit of an unknown, this game, really, because Turkey won't play anything like that they did in the sec- in the first game. They'll come out and play. Uh, meanwhile, Wales will probably take things slightly similarly to their first game against Switzerland. They obviously know all about the baking Baku heat now, um, and they'll look to conserve as much energy as possible. So it may be them sitting in deep, playing on the counter whilst Turkey... Whilst Turkey um, control possession, maybe. Maybe uh, their youthful legs might hit them early. I've predicted a 2-0 win for Turkey with uh, Hakan Çalhanoğlu scoring pretty um, scoring a double and I think he'll have a good game. He can't have any worse of a game than he did on Friday night. Um, Wales don't have a good second game record in tournaments, but of course it's none of it's really pertinent. Lost to England in 2016, drew to Mexico in 1958 and that's all we've got really got to go off for. <laughs> and of course none of it really matters. The... Uh, so the little stats there. The 8pm kickoff, the evening kickoff is from Group A as well, where we've got Italy playing Sweden, uh, Switzerland rather. Switzerland have never won a second game at the European Championships, only coming close with a 1-1 draw against Romania in 2016. Meanwhile, Italy have only lost one of their eight games. Italy coming off the back of their biggest ever European Championships win, scoring three for the first time, looked like one of the dark horses. Now perhaps a lighter shade going into another home game in Rome. But there is a slight doubt in the back of my mind after the uh, and Bolo display in Baku. His speed against Giorgio Chiellini and Leonardo Bonucci will be the biggest battle going into this game. The wing-backs for Switzerland are key as well. If they're not fully pushed back by the Italian wingers, they could create something as well. You've got Ricardo Rodriguez at left-back, loves to get forward. And if Italy don't have don't toy with the ball a little bit like they did in the, in the game on Friday night, I can see Switzerland maybe making a couple of uh, decent runs on the counter. Uh, maybe... Harry Seferovic, maybe he's not the best player to play in this fixture, but he's, he will play probably. Um, Shakiri and Mbolo and Xhaka, of course, will be crucial to these counter-attacks when Switzerland get them, if as rare they might be. But Mbolo's speed against Chiellini and Bonucci is going to be something to look out for there, as is, of course, the front three of Switz, of, of Italy with um, 
their fullbacks so high, and which is why I think Switzerland might have a little bit of joy in the counter attack because Spinazzola plays extremely high. Obviously, Florenzi tucks into a three, but Embola's speed against Chiellini and Bonucci. Florenzi isn't the quickest like Chiellini and Bonucci, but they'll, Italy will have to have their two centre halves mind sharp as attack to uh, gain that advantage over Embola, who, if he continues his form at least, will be very, very dangerous in that game tonight. I'm looking to the very first game of um, today is Finland versus Russia, 2pm kickoff. Finland, of course, no history in second games. Meanwhile, Russia haven't won a second game since a 1-0 win over Greece in 2008 at the Euros, which is their only win uh, in the European Championship second game. You've got a loss to Germany in 96, to Portugal in 2004, to Slovakia. Uh, four years ago. I think this is the most intriguing intriguing game f- today because of the nature of those first games. Russia were absolutely hapless, even at home. Of course, we'll never know how Finland would have done in their game in Copenhagen had, um, had the game been played out normally. And um, Russia were very shambolic. Maybe that's even a knock-on effect from um, the game from Saturday night post the Christian Eriksen incident, of course, uh, Finland will have been even more deeply affected, one, by being a Nordic country, two, by being on the pitch, sharing the pitch with him. Um, but regardless, it's two countries with um, previous in politics. Uh, it's been played in St. Petersburg as well, which is the closest city to the Finnish border. I predicted prior to the tournament that Finland would beat Russia, but not qualify. Obviously, those two can't coexist now because Finland win, they're through because it's six points. They've almost definitely will go through now. Um, well, yeah, they, they will go through with a win um, because third place, the minimum, really. Um, there's been two draws in two other groups, so they will they can't get six points. So a win here qualifies Finland for the last 16. And I effectively, they could only need a point to qualify. Uh, I've got Finland down for a big win. Um, might be out of the left field, really, but I just feel Joel... Ponyapalo, Timo Puki, I think they've got that energy in midfield. Russia's defence isn't the best. Yuri Zhirkov won't play another game at the tournament and he looked fragile against Belgium, to be fair. I just don't think Russia have got enough in the tank. Finland will be well up for it. It's their first tournament. Obviously, these are intangibles, but I just have that gut feeling, so to speak, that Finland might create something against Russia. Big derby. Maybe it's more of a big game for Finland in the history of the countries than it is Russia. Russia not waving a ride of a, 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 a tide of optimism as they uh, did in 2018. The defence is that much older. The midfield isn't too great. They've got attacking talents. You've got Mirren, Chuck, you've got Cherishev, obviously Zuba. Um, but I just think Finland, have, the more cohesive, they are probably the better team um, as a team. Obviously, they don't have the individuals that Russia have, but they do have Timu Puki up top, and I do think he'll bag a couple of goals tonight or this afternoon, rather. And it's probably the game I'm most looking forward to out of the, uh, aside from England, Scotland, obviously, because of home nations and being English. Um, it's the game I'm most excited for in this second round of fixtures, potentially with uh, Germany versus Portugal as well. That'd be a good one. Um, but we will, of course, cover all those in the coming days and we'll be reviewing Finland versus Russia, Wales, Turkey, Italy, Switzerland on tomorrow's show, as well as looking forward to the Group C fixtures and 
Denmark versus Belgium tomorrow. We'll be here right through to the end of the tournament every single day with uh, reviews, match previews and on the rest days, we won't stop on the rest days either. We'll be uh, covering European Championships gone by from 1960 all the way to the present day. If you're enjoying the show, give us a lovely five-star review wherever you get your podcasts, really, Acast, Spotify, Amazon Music or Apple and we'll, of course, be on patreon.com forward slash whatifootball with this podcast every single day and even more content after the championships there. Until tomorrow, silly, up the three Lions and Cymru and Boeuf as well for all those Welsh listeners out there. Sports Social Podcast Network.